Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. I intentionally base my messages on the words of Scripture and then try to relate them to our daily lives. Although I speak from a Christian perspective, I hope that people of all faith traditions will find something of value here. For the next few weeks, I'm going to be focusing on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew. It's a wonderful compilation of Jesus' teachings and a great resource for us who seek to be his followers. This week, I'm going to be focusing on the beginning of a sermon, which is called the Beatitudes, or Blessings. Now, suppose that you have followed Jesus up the mountain on that day. You'd heard about this guy who was traveling through the countryside, casting out demons and healing people of all kinds of diseases. He developed quite a following, and you decide to join the growing crowds. There was a festive atmosphere as people milled around on the hillside, spreading out their blankets and jockeying to get a good place to hear him speak. Some people were breaking out picnic lunches of olives, bread, fish, and wine. And following, finally, the crowd grows quiet as he begins to speak. Jesus sits down at the front of a natural amphitheater and confidently projects his voice so all can hear. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here ends the reading. As you sit there in the crowd, you are confused by what this man is saying. He says that the poor in in spirit are fortunate. He's saying that people who are in mourning are lucky. He says that if you're meek, you're going to have great earthly power. Perhaps the most outlandish thing that he says is that you're fortunate if people ridicule you and persecute you because you're following him. In fact, everything that comes out of his mouth is the opposite of the way the world works and what you would expect. What kind of foolishness is this anyway? Years later, after this self-proclaimed Messiah had been hunted down and executed for stirring up trouble, His greatest promoter, the Apostle Paul, says just that. Paul says the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Jesus' message doesn't make any sense. His crucifixion contradicts it. And that's what Jesus is preaching here, the message of the cross. Power comes out of weakness, 
Glorification comes out of persecution. Life ultimately comes out of death. But Paul says, for those of us who are being saved, this message contains the power of God. Well, how do the Beatitudes actually work? How do they work their magic? How are we to make sense of statements that are patently nonsensical? To figure that out, I'm going to go through them one at a time. And to review, these are the eight Beatitudes that Jesus preached. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are those who are persecuted. This week, because this is such rich material, I'll focus on the first four. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the word blessed in each of these teachings, blessed or blessed, can be substituted by fortunate, lucky, or happy. That understanding makes the first beatitude kind of problematic. How can you possibly say that someone who is poor in spirit is fortunate? The poor in spirit are people who are downcast or hopeless. The poor in spirit are lacking in faith and spiritual resources. The poor in spirit are almost by definition unhappy. The world has beaten them down. That does sound like foolishness to say that they're blessed. Jesus is not saying that there is anything good about being poor in spirit itself. Quite the contrary. Indeed, instead, we can read this first beatitude as Jesus saying, Listen to me, those of you who are poor in spirit. I will give you the kingdom of heaven where you will be spiritually filled. You have hope. You have something to look forward to. This is good news for us when we feel that our faith is failing us and we have given up. Jesus comes to us with a promise. He understood we can't rely on our own resources, even our spiritual resources. As Martin Luther put it in his explanation of the third article of the Creed, I know that I cannot, by my own reason and strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. The biblical character that comes to me when we speak of spiritual poverty is the Apostle Thomas. Now, he was poor in spirit. Thomas is downcast and doesn't believe it when he hears Jesus has been raised from the dead. Despite all the assurances that Jesus had given his disciples before his death, Thomas' expectation of the power of Jesus are crushed by his death. We read in the Gospel of John, Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the other disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my fingers in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas is a prime example of someone who is poor in spirit. He's not naturally optimistic. But Thomas is blessed in the end when he sees the resurrected Lord. 
His spiritual poverty is converted into spiritual riches. When he appears, when Jesus appears before him, he says with relief, My Lord and my God. And he believed. I call this spiritual humility. The opposite of what we would call spiritual self-confidence. Now, I can personally relate to Thomas. I'm often suspicious when someone seems to have their faith all figured out. They confess the right creed, praise God in the right way, and maybe go to the right church. Now, that's all well and good, and if that's true, more, more power to them. They are blessed. But I personally know I don't have it all figured out. I get down sometimes. And that's why this beatitude makes me feel better. I'm normal. And it won't always be this way. I have been promised the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes I get a little glimpse. The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. I've been in mourning before for someone I lost and loved and lost. And I certainly didn't feel fortunate that I experienced that loss. Loss even got Jesus down. He wept when he found out that his friend Lazarus had died. Grief and mourning are things that we don't ever want to experience. In fact, it's the last thing we want to experience. But the reality of life is that we will experience losses. Sometimes devastating losses, friends and family. With the mortality rates that existed at the time that Jesus was living in, mourning would have been a frequent and common state of affairs for those listening to him. But as painful as mourning is, it is a necessary process. Mourning has a purpose. Mourning is healing. And that's what Jesus means when he says, those who mourn will be comforted. When someone dies, we have established rituals that help us mourn, to help us get through the pain of the moment. We comfort each other. Our mourning helps us get through the pain of the moment so that we can eventually hear the good news in the promise of eternal life, even if we can't hear it right now. Plus, the pain that we feel and the tears that we shed are visible memorials to those we have lost. Mourning is sacred work. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is credited with founding the hospice movement, identified a process that we go through when we experience a loss. She lists the five stages of grieving as denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Not always in that order. When we get the word that someone else or we ourselves have terminal cancer, we, at first we can't believe it. We're in shock. We're in denial. This can't be happening. But soon as the reality sets in, we may become angry. Angry with God. Angry with the doctors who are helpless to save us or our friend. Or even angry with ourselves for not taking care of ourselves. We get so desperate, we seek to bargain with God. God, if you will give, cure this cancer, God, I'll turn my life around and serve you. 
And after we've been through the ringer of grief, we may descend into depression, into the depths of spiritual poverty, when hope has been abandoned. In the end, however, as we have worked through this process, and not necessarily in that order, as I said, we will hopefully move to acceptance and healing. Life has meaning and makes sense again. We have the power to move on. We may be scarred by grief, but can we, we can go ahead. I remember when my brother died. He died suddenly and unexpectedly of a heart attack. And I was in shock when I got the call from the hospital telling me of his death. I was sad and shed tears with my family and friends before his funeral. But as I sat with a group of close friends gathered in our living room after the funeral, I suddenly broke down in uncontrollably sobbing, in uncontrollable sobbing to the point that someone had to physically hold me up. As the sobbing subsided, however, I did experience a sense of comfort and peace. My mourning was far from over. It still isn't over. But I have been and continue to be comforted. I am blessed. The third beatitude, blessed are the meek. According to the wisdom of the world and the lessons that we often teach our children, this is another piece of foolishness. What Jesus should have said is this, blessed are the bold, blessed are the go-getters, blessed are the winners. They're the ones that rule the world and really get things done. Blessed are the strong in business. Blessed are those who do whatever it takes to increase the bottom line. We live in a culture where competitive sports take up much of our time and energy. The new American dream is to win a Super Bowl, a Final Four, a World Series, or the World Cup. Young people devote their lives striving for a gold medal in the Olympics. You can't achieve any of these dreams by being meek. The meek are losers. The goal is to win at any cost. And if we can't win ourselves, we can associate ourselves with a team that can. The problem is that we are confusing meekness with weakness. It may be instructive for us to look at the opposite of meekness, such as arrogance, egoism, haughtiness, and conceit. When we confuse meekness and weakness, it causes us to overvalue our personal worth and capabilities. The star athlete begins to value him or herself over others. Most of us will never have what it takes to be a star in any sport. Those who have been blessed with star magnitude, talents, and physical abilities always face the temptation to become complacent and conceited. It takes a high degree of moral character to remain humble when you are riding high. Ultimately, however, it is the meek or the humble who gain true respect and success. The tyrants and despots of history totally devalue humility and meekness 
and would see meekness as a character flaw. We're witnessing it clearly today in the per person of Vladimir Putin. For some reason, Putin has decided that a deadly show of military might will lead to the conquest of Ukraine and Russia will reign supreme. Putin unabashedly seeks to inherit and rule the earth. Nothing meek there. We are in dire need that other nations, including our own, respond with strength tempered with humility, trusting in the promise that the meek will inherit the earth. The fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The fourth beatitude is related to the previous one, meekness. It has to do with our purpose in life. Is it the quest for righteousness? In his last of the beatitudes in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is quoted as saying, blessed are the hungry. There he focused on literally hungry people in his world, of whom there were many. Famine and food shortages were common. Really, the two different versions of this beatitude are really not so different after all. Jesus' blessing of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness means those who seek justice in the world, and social justice would include everyone having access to adequate nutrition and enough to eat. Jesus blessed those who just can't sit by and watch people starve while others gorge themselves at lavish feasts. Well, everybody in America cares about social justice, right? We all hunger and thirst for righteousness. Wrong. Let's talk about a major concern related to social justice in America, racism as an example. A recent poll found that 58% of Americans acknowledge that racism is built into the American economy, government, and education system. That includes over half of white Americans, though they were less likely than any other racial group group to believe so. A small percentage of those polled reported that they had personally taken an action to better understand racism in the past two years, and an even smaller percentage had taken action to counter racism. There are also considerable numbers of people who deny that racial injustice exists and resist efforts to raise awareness of social inequalities. In other words, there are people who hunger and thirst for social justice, those who don't care enough to act, and those who would fight against social justice movements because they threaten their own position in society and would prefer the status quo. In Jesus' day, those who tried to correct the injustices and inequalities imposed by the Roman Empire and tried to reimagine a just society would be blessed, Jesus said. As Isaiah, whom Jesus often quoted, said, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bounds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not hide yourself from your kin. You should hunger and thirst for righteousness.
We can read this as an encouragement to work for justice and equality of all kinds, not just racial justice in our own time and place in history. And Jesus promises that that hunger and thirst will be satisfied. Well, that's the beginning of Jesus' amazing and surprising teachings on the mountain that day. Make yourself comfortable. Next week, we'll continue to hear the many ways that we can be blessed by a humble teacher from Galilee who, through his own struggles, would change the world. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you with grace and mercy and give you peace.